Let's see. Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. And today we got on the program, Mike, Michael Faber. Michael Faber, uh, thank you for coming to the program. You want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Well, let's see. Um, open theist, uh, Christian, father of six, um, all of whom are uh, out of the house. And so I'm empty nesting. Um, I have a channel on YouTube. Um, but you'll have to probably search for something like John 3 or something because I don't know if I have an actual good search on there. So anyway, if you want to know what it, just let me know afterwards and I can get you hooked up. Um, not an Acts 9 dispensationalist, but certainly interested to talk about it. So, Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you had an interesting debate that I watched um, in which you were against some sort of like a Calvinist, right? And talking about open theism. Um, no, he was actually a provisionist, but he was kind of a Molinist. Oh, kind um, of a Molinist. He, he wanted he well, he wanted to get more into the B theory of time, but never actually presented anything. So, um, uh, but it was it was a good debate. Um, got a chance to really present a lot of scripture that uh, he really couldn't handle. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good times. And so, yeah, I'd suggest everyone go check that out as well. But today we're talking about, as you mentioned, dispensationalism. And uh, a lot of people have a lot of different ideas when it comes to dispensationalism, what it means, what it entails. Uh, a lot of people like to talk about raptures and stuff. I don't talk very much about raptures or anything. I'm not into rapture theology. But maybe we could start off by you giving us a little bit of an overview of what you see dispensationalism is. And then from there, we'll start talking about... Uh, what specifically Acts nine dispensationalism Acts nine dispensationalism is, um, and then and then talk through those different angles. Does that sure. sound good? Yeah, that's fine. Um, my understanding is the dispensationalism comes from uh, basically dispensations of the Holy Spirit. It's a kind of a it's a King James translation of the word, but basically the dispensationalists will break up Scripture into different pieces or different ways in which the Holy Spirit interacts with creation. Uh, and this can do, do with either, um, you know, like the Holy Spirit only comes through uh, the anointed ones during the Israel period. It also define how salvation occurs during the various dispensations as well. And that's really kind of the, the core. Um, a lot of the focus really gets focused on sort of the, the church age dispensation, which we are in right now. Um, and then how does eschatology then work for Israel and for Gentiles coming out of that? Um, my understanding is traditional dispensationalists will have seven dispensations, although I've heard of people that have up to, I believe, 21. Uh, so yeah. that, that might be my first question of you is how many dispensations are there and tell me about each one of them. Uh, well, yeah, I um, I don't think I have a number of dispensations. So my idea of dispensationalism is uh i think everyone's kind of a little bit dispensationalist like everybody's just just a little bit uh that god works with various people groups in different ways at different uh, points of time and so i've seen those charts as well that you've seen and a lot of them get confusing and they're a little bit muddled and people like to split hairs over what specific dispensations there are the one dispensation that i do care about so i don't have a number of dispensations uh the one that i think is uh, a little bit more critical to a discussion is the dispensational change between uh the gospel jesus's gospel to the jews and the change of the of paul's gospel to the gentiles which i see 
as a pretty sharp division, which we are still partaking in. And so you're, you're not going to get me to like draw a big chart or anything and try to make all these delineations. Uh, well, I, mean, I just wanted to know, I've heard that somebody said there's a dispensation for the thief on the cross. And I didn't know if you had that one. Well, I, I could be because sometimes God treats people as individuals right. and, and not as a collective beings. And it's a, God's prerogative how he wants to deal with any individuals. Oh, and, sure. Yeah. And it, it, it tends to be that these rules are set down uh, as God is interacting with people. He figures out new processes. He has to change change the way he approaches people. And so it could be a dispensation. A dispensation is as small as an individual or as big as a group of people, just depending on the situation. So that that's what I say. I, I, I also think those dispensational charts are get a little bit out there. Uh, I like to compare oh, yeah. to some of these government charts, like these complicated government programs where where it's like the most complicated chart in human history are these government programs. And those dispensational charts are are up there, almost in those same categories. So I you know, uh, the thing it reminds me of, have you seen the the gif of the it's an actor and I can't remember his name, but behind him is a chart with a bunch of lines and a bunch of oh, yeah. tape to it. And he's like going, you know, like this. <laughs> That's what the yeah, church kind of reminds that's, me of. That's so. from it's it's always sunny in Philadelphia. That was uh That's right. Day. That's right. Okay. Yeah, Charlie. D I think that's the actor name, or that's the character name in that show. But he's yeah. he's got this big crazy chart, and so um, people like try to make a distinction. Oh, there's a dispensation to Adam and Eve, and then there's a Noahic dispensation. Um, but all those, you know, I, I take it or leave it. I I don't necessarily. I'm not gonna. There's not gonna be a hill that I'm gonna die on for those dispensations. But Paul's dispensation to the Gentiles. Um, so what we see in Acts, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Acts, you seem very well schooled in the Bible, is uh, there's a focus on the 12 disciples after Jesus dies. And throughout oh, the book of Acts, the before focus... Before we too far. Oh, yeah. Um, they're in the Acts 9 camp. There's the 12 apostles, 12 in and 12 out. So are the 12, are the 12, are the 12 disciples or 12 apostles are they in the body of Christ or are they in the Jewish dispensation? Yeah, that's actually a very good point. So um, I'll, I'll give a quick overview. Okay, that's fine. Uh, what, I, just, what I just remembered that I wanted to ask that question. No, that that's actually really good because I want to even make a further subdivision too, just to, just to get a little bit out there. Um, so Jesus had a ministry to the in, in uh, normal dispensationalism. Jesus had a ministry to the Jews, which involved a national moral reformation. Uh, he dies, and the Acts 2 dispensationalists say after Jesus died, now you issue, issue in salvation by faith alone or faith plus the cross, some sort of redemption. So the, there's a change happening in Acts 2. Whereas Acts 9 dispensationalists say that uh, the 12 disciples kept preaching Jesus' ministry until the time of around Acts 9 when God decided to drop the Jews and open up salvation to the to the Gentiles, but furthermore, you you have the question: Is 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 the twelve disciples? Did they continue preaching to the Jews, or did they go along with Paul and start preaching Paul's message? And so we call that Acts Acts nine in and out. So were the twelve disciples were they in with Paul preaching the same thing, 
or were they out with Paul preaching different things? And I would fall in the out. And furthermore, I would subdivide divide it, uh, saying that they weren't they weren't very fond of each other. You you see a lot of attention in throughout the Bible in their interactions, and so there's there's some hostility between James and the twelve and Paul in his ministry. So, uh, going and pointing to various parts of the Bible in which uh, James might be critiquing Paul and saying these these must conform. I would take the position that no, they, they're, they're, there's actual tension there. That tension is real. And they they didn't like each other. They tolerated each other. And they're a little bit of passive aggressive towards each other, which tends to be when I, when I look up scholars who are talking about this, and by scholars, I mean people like Bart Ehrman, Rita Aslan, and even Ellen Pagels. I mean, those are kind of left-leaning scholars, but they recognize the tension that's going on in these interactions. And so uh, it, it, I don't think it was necessarily too friendly. There, there's some hostility, as we will see. I'm sure we'll be getting into Acts 21, where I see this come to a head. Does that make sense? So there's Acts 9 in, Acts 9 out. There's Acts yeah, 2. Yeah. And then there's so are the disciples saved under the Jewish the Jewish gospel then? Yeah, it seems that way. It seems okay. like there's a transition phase. Uh, Paul, at some point in his ministry, started teaching Jews to circumcise, which that actually boils to a head because the 12 disciples, they were all for the Gentiles being grafted in and being part of the ministry until Paul extended his teaching to the Jews and told the Jews not to circumcise, which in Acts 21, he's called to account to do, something that he was in fact doing. And he had to go through this uh, almost a humiliating little pageantry in order to try to prove Two people, he wasn't teaching what he was actually teaching. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. And so Paul's ministry in standard dispensationalism hey, is Paul. to... Oh, I'm sorry. Go. Um, I'm not... Can you ask the audience if you're sounding kind of um, robotish because you're, you're a little bit kind of broken up to me? And it might be me because I live out in the country. All right. Uh, I don't got an audience right now. Let's see. How do I find my audience? That would be a good idea. Um, let me pull this up here. So uh, you are not a dispensationalist, and you take a little bit of issue with dispensationalism. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. And so do you believe that there – well, I only got Clooney in the top chat here. Um, so he's well. Let, let me clarify that. Like you said, everybody is a dispensationalist to one extent or another. I mean, unless you're like hardcore old school covenantal theology, where basically the old and covenant are the same thing, and there's really only changes kind of some more some civil laws and, and the sacrificial system. I mean, there's you know the revelation of Christ brings about a change in how we interact with God for sure. Right. Absolutely. Like so. When I say everyone's a little bit dispensationalist, unless you're like eating kosher and then you're going to church yeah. on Saturday and then not working and like incorporating all the Jewish laws and, and rituals, um, then you're then you're a little bit dispensationalist because you have right. to admit there there's some sort of process change uh, throughout the Bible for believers or God fears or however well, you want to categorize. I them. guess the way I, I call myself a new covenant theologian because I think. To me, the Old Covenant is specific to Israel, 
and is given specifically to Israel to produce the Messiah. Okay, it's not, it's not, the old covenant is not a salvific covenant. You don't get saved through the old covenant. Um, and so the, the Jews interact with God specific to how God instructs them because they are the chosen people, again, to produce the Messiah. Um, but they are still saved through the new covenant um, because when Christ established the new covenant, now all those who have died in faith, as we see in, in Hebrews 11, um, are then uh, brought forth by Christ to uh, to heaven to to live with him. Uh, and so the the change that we see is really um, the and what I call the eschaton of the old covenant, the old covenant, um, the Joel, Joel 2, uh, 28 through 32 uh, prophecy starts in 87, 80, what well, starts at Pentecost and ends in 8070. And so the old test, the old covenant kind of comes to an, it comes to an end uh, as that, as that prophecy, along with several others regarding the end of the old covenant occur. So uh, in that, in that sense, I suppose the dispensation that, that Israel was living under because they were the ones to produce the Messiah came to an end. I, w I guess I would agree with that much, but in more the traditional understanding of the dispensations, you know, changing, uh, you know, with Noah, changing with the giving of law, changing with Christ, changing with the coming of the church. Um, I, I don't, I don't break it up quite that much, I guess. So, yeah. So yeah, we, we are on the same page a little bit there. So we're, we're all a little bit dispensationalist uh, where, yeah. where probably our disagreements going to come in is the whole Acts nine in out. Yeah. If there's yeah. any, tension or hostility um and that's that's typically in when you t start talking about dispensations no one really cares about like king saul of the old testament they're not arguing about that it's always it's always about paul and so i'll, I'll give well, you a there's, there's nineveh too but that's you know another thing so <laughs> all right i'll give you a, a brief history of how i see the plot of the bible unfold okay that's okay um so of of course, after the fall of man, after the flood, uh, God establishes a priestly nation. This priestly nation's Israel, and their tasking is to be that mediator. A priest is a mediator. A priest is a mediator between God and man. Their tasking is to be that mediator with the world. But first, they got to whip themselves into shape. And so, the whole story of the Old Testament is God interacting with these people and striving with these people to turn them into a real priest nation. This never happens. It happens. Uh, it it uh, very much frustrates God. You see God's frustration throughout the text of the Bible. What more could I have done for you that I have not done? They were just unwilling priests. They didn't fulfill their priestly duties. And so God sent his only son in order to give him a last chance at reformation. So you see Jesus's ministry. It's always to the Jews. It's all only to the lost sheep of Israel. And it's, it's his message isn't really a believe in me, believe in atonement, believe in my blood. Uh, he hadn't died. Uh, his blood wasn't a thing to atone for. So when you look at his message, it's all about a moral reformation. It's about bringing Israel back in line with their priestly mission. And so from that mission, they could reach the rest of the world for God. Yeah, they had special rules and regulations that applied only to them that weren't like moral laws, like wearing the same fabric. Those were parts of their priestly status. But the idea was that they would use this status to reach the Gentiles who had a different 
way to reach God. So there's God fearers, people who could worship God who are Gentiles that don't have to convert to Judaism. You see this throughout the Bible. So Jesus comes and again, Israel rejects their their Messiah. They reject their risen Messiah after he rises. And then at some point uh, the, they kept rejecting even after Jesus had rose from the dead and was seen by 500 people and that all this witness going around and they still wouldn't repent. And so that's when God intervenes and uh, uh, he, he uh, hijacks basically Saul, Paul on his way to Damascus. And he, he says, Hey, you're going to be my new individual. I'm going to use you. You're going to go to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are now going to be grafted in. This grafted language is used in Romans. Uh, where the, the old branches are cut away, the new branches are grafted in. There's some sort of change of process described in Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11, whereas Paul now has a new thing that wasn't done before. And he talks about this in Ephesians. I don't want to shotgun like proof text or anything, but it's a, you see these ideas in his writings where there's a new mystery that has never before been made known that he's now implemented. He's, he's the disciple to the Gentiles. And you see his mission very Gentile-focused. And so the idea there is that the Gentiles are going to come in and they're going to reach the world. They're going to reach the world for God. So how well has that worked? And, and in Romans, uh, Paul writes that the reason that God did this and he gave the salvation, the salvation to the Gentiles was to make the Jews jealous. I'm sure you're familiar with that passage. Uh -huh. So tell me what is wrong with this picture of the Bible. Okay. Um, First and foremost, if you read, uh, especially around the parables, but it also says in a few other places, Jesus' ministry to the Jews was was as a prophet, um, but he always taught the Jews in parables. And the reason he taught the Jews in parables so that they would continue to be ever seeing but not uh, not perceiving, and ever uh, ever hearing but not understanding, uh, the the gospels and the way that Jesus interacts with the gospels seems to be sort of Jesus taking a group of people who have already um, immersed themselves into this legalistic seeking righteousness through the law um, and ignoring the elements of justice and mercy. And as uh, I've heard called, he judicially hardens them in the sense that he interacts with them in such a way that they aren't going to change their minds. Okay. Um, and that's why he speaks in parables. Uh, and that's why he, more or less insults the the Jewish leaders. Um, I call it poking the bear. Uh, he does a lot of, of poking of, of the Jewish leaders and things like that. And I think Jesus' purpose, because if we go over to Acts uh, 4, 27, 28, um, when uh, Peter, this Peter, I think this is Peter, I think it's Peter's talking to the leaders. He's saying, according to his foreknowledge and predestination, you crucified him. You know, you're, all of you people, you got together, you crucified him, but that was God's plan. And you can see, if you if you take that picture and you go back and you read the Gospels, you can say, yeah, Jesus is poking the bear. He's getting people excited about him. And then, like in John, he starts preaching, preaching in such ways that they start turning against him. Um, you know, especially at the end of John 6, it basically says all the most of his disciples that were following him stop following because this is teaching is just too tough. Okay, and at that point, they turn again, even his disciples, the people that were following against him, turn against him and are yelling, crucify him. 
And I think this is Jesus' purpose in coming. He comes to um, Israel as a prophet preaching purely the old covenant and saying, you know, uh, and, and this is, you know, pre like John the Baptist says, prepare the way for the, for the Messiah. He's telling them to <clears throat> go back to the roots of the old covenant, understand what the old covenant was really supposed to be. <clears throat> Jesus is preaching the same thing. But the Jewish people just hear it as everything you've been taught is wrong. And, um, and, and then they basically turn against him. And so I think that's to me, that's Jesus' purpose in coming is just like the Old Testament prophets. He comes and tells them the truth, tells them things they don't want to hear, uh, tells the leaders, you're all wrong. You don't know what you're doing. Um, you know, Jesus, you know, whitewashed tombs and the whole thing. But he's constantly just poking that bear so that the, at the end of that three years, at the appropriate time, Judas, uh, um, Judas betrays him. The Jewish leaders give him up to the Roman leaders to be uh, to be crucified, and they do so. And, and so Jesus, during his three years, in addition to raising up his disciples and preparing them, is also uh, doing his role as a prophet uh, to do what Israel does to prophets to eventually kill him. And that's what establishes the new covenant. And so um, I, I guess that's what I see, you know, this was God's predestination and plan. And then you see Jesus doing all these things to basically tick everybody off. Um, it seems like Jesus is setting himself up to be crucified. So that's, that's what I see in the Gospels. Jesus isn't giving them another chance. Um, the, Jesus is actually what we call judicially hardening them in that they've already hardened themselves against their Messiah, against the Old Covenant, in burying themselves in the minutiae of the following of the law. And he's just he's just taking that and, and bringing it so that they do their they commit their final sin because um, if you remember back to the, the vineyard workers, uh, the parable of the vineyard workers, um, Jesus says, you know, vineyard worker left some work, owner left the vineyard workers. He went off, sent servants to them, and everyone they came, excuse <coughs> me, this one they mistreated, that one they killed. And finally, the owner says, well, I'll send my son, he'll respect him. And the vineyard workers say, hey, let's kill the heir, and then we can keep the the vineyard, and then you ask, you know, what's going to happen to those vineyard workers? And well, of course, they're going to be cast out into outer darkness. And the text even says that the Pharisees knew that he had spoken this against them, that they were the vineyard workers. And so, uh, Jesus' ministry is kind of is through telling them the truth, through prophesying, through um, you know, basically being God in in prophet form, is setting himself up to be crucified. So I think that's the one thing is that Jesus is not giving them a, a last chance here. He's um, really pointing out their errors. He's preaching to them in parables um, and really creating a clear delineation between himself and where the Jewish leaders and ultimately the Jewish people stood. And then that um, ultimately wound up in his crucifixion. So I think that's maybe one thing we see a little bit different in the gospel. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I do see what you're saying there. there. It seems to be a pretty common idea in Christianity where Jesus's role was to uh, put so down sort of standards that people couldn't fulfill for an object lesson for for us today and other people in the world. And uh, I, I I hadn't heard anyone uh, put it like you have, in which that he's trying to poke the bear in order to get killed. I always saw his parables as a way to avoid being killed because if he came out and just directly stated his his apocalypticism, I see him as a very apocalyptic in his teaching uh, he would be executed fairly quickly like others were in that time well they tried to do it a couple of times and he slipped away 
Well, yeah, because he doesn't want to get executed. Well, he just wanted to get executed right then because it wasn't the right time yet. He needed It needed to happen in a particular way that he wanted to happen. But by the same token, you can see him dancing on that edge, you know, as, you know, he, they say, um, uh, you know, well, our father Abraham, and he says, well, before, before Abraham was, I am. I mean, basically pretty much makes a clear claim to be God in John 8, 58. And they take stones to, to crucify him and he slips away. Then he and runs so, away. Then he, he yeah. prays in the garden of Gethsemane, let this cut pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Well, so, you, you, you he really, he's still he's a human being. Yeah. He, he knows what he's facing. He's he's probably seen crucifixions before and he knows what he's what he's facing. And so there's a, a any human being facing that is going to be like, man, is there something else I could do besides go through this crucifixion thing because of this sucks? Yeah, so so you do got to admit he didn't he didn't want to get uh, crucified. Well, again, there's 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 an element of, of all of us that says I don't want to die and I don't want to yeah. suffer, and so um, you know there's every every person that goes through that is like how do I get out of this? How do I get away from this? And that's just a natural human, uh, even a non-fallen human instinct that we all have. So um, I, I don't I, I think that is more. Jesus showing us his human side, showing that he's, I am suffering here. I'm even now before I begin, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Um, <coughs> understand what I'm going through. And so I'm, I'm expressing the agony that my mind is naturally going through because I know I'm about to be killed in a very, very cruel way. So, yeah. So I, I see uh, Jesus, he doesn't really, when he's preaching moral reformation, He's not preaching the moral reformation in parables. He's telling people what to do, not know what not to do. Uh, don't sin. If you, if your hand offends you, cut your hand yep. off because the time yep. is close. When he starts talking in parables, um, it's really surrounding the, the, his apocalyptic ministry. Like, oh, now you're you're throwing wheat on the ground, and some of the wheat grows, and some of it doesn't. And that doesn't seem to be the primary content of what he's there to do. Uh, preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand would you would you agree with me that repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand was his primary ministry um i would say that's where he started you see that at the beginning of jesus ministry um as you go along you see jesus performing miracles uh before the crowds as evidence that he is the messiah you see him uh teaching in parables so again as so they and this is a direct quote. It's uh, so seeing they won't perceive and hearing they won't understand. The, the purpose is so that they don't understand or that they're confused about what's going on. And as you see, Jesus going further and further in his ministry, he continues to provide, provide proofs from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament, that he is the Messiah, but doing it in such a way that Israel can't accept what he's saying because of their beliefs and their traditions. So, uh, like, like I said, I, I think he can, he, he says, I'm going to be teaching the old covenant and saying, repent, the kingdom, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then continues to separate himself from where Israel and where the Israel's leaders are from where the old covenant is to the point that that separation causes a sufficient amount of tension and a sufficient amount of basically political angst that they put into death. So yes. I think that's, that's the ongoing thing. It's really the separation between where the old covenant is, the proof that Jesus is the Messiah, and where the Jews are in their heart and state. Yeah. So, so next one, we, we see, uh, after Jesus rises from the dead, he preaches to them for, what is it? Uh, 30 or 40 days. It's, uh, well, Pentecost is 50, but I think you're right. I think it is 40. 
So Jesus preaches to them for 40 days and they have one question and their question is this, Acts 1, 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will it you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And at so there- does a face bomb. I'm sorry? <laughs> at, at which point Jesus does a face bomb. Well, that is if he's preaching what you're preaching. If he's preaching the coming kingdom of God, an apocalyptic event in which God returns to earth, kills the wicked, and blesses the righteous and restores justice on earth. If that was Jesus's primary ministry, this wouldn't be a face palm. This would be uh, a serious question to be considered. Well, the, but the disciples are asking this from the perspective of the Davidic kingdom. He's thinking that they're thinking that he's going to reestablish the old borders of the Davidic kingdom, just kick those Romans out, and, and he's going to rule as a, as a physical king on earth over this uh, over the Davidic kingdom, the promised land that God promised to them. And so, uh, yeah. And I, yeah, yeah. I, I would say that was his ministry. That's why he was preaching. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't see any place in the, in any of his teachings where he says something about reestablishing land. I don't the kingdom see of God. Hmm? Yeah. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What's the kingdom right, of but God? He's, he's, Right, but again, what is what is the kingdom? He doesn't he, he doesn't define the kingdom of God as land. He never said he never says that it's like people may understand it as land. And again, this is part of the you know the sort of the separation between what the Messiah was supposed to be, what the Jews thought the Messiah was going to be. Uh, but the repent for the kingdom of Kevin and God is at hand because he says to the um, and I'm trying to remember the scripture reference. I think it's in Luke, but he says to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is in you. Mm -hmm. Okay, and he's he's referring to their hearts. He's referring to uh, what they believe, and that's that's the thing that Jesus is focused while he's here on earth is you need to believe in me. If you want eternal life, you need to believe in me. If you want to, if if you want to see the kingdom, you need to believe in me. If you want to see the miracles, you need to believe in me. He went home, and because nobody believed that he was anything more than a carpenter's son, he didn't do a lot of miracles there because they didn't believe. And so his, the, the, the repent for the kingdom of heaven in his hand to get participating in the kingdom was believing in him. It wasn't ever land. And well, so I, I think there's aspects of both. I think uh, depending on the passage in which it's being used, uh, the kingdom of God is described as people having banquets, people coming in and out of that kingdom. Um, the, the angels rounding up the wicked and putting them to death. There's this restoration of the earth imagery. And so I think he uses it in, in the sense that, yeah, there is, there is a current kingdom in our hearts, but it, it also involves this apocalyptic event, which has been preached throughout the Bible, that God is going to return to earth and restore justice, kill the oh, wicked, yes. and bless there, the righteous. That's for sure, but that's not, the Jews aren't going to lead that. Oh, no. That, yeah, Jesus was not teaching that the Jews were going to lead it. He, he was teaching pacifism in face of God was going to lead it with angels. Okay, I'm not sure that Jesus ever taught pacifism, but okay. Well, yeah, well, it's, uh, no, you Jesus, don't. Jesus, Jesus really did not teach on government or did not teach on government ethics. He taught on personal ethics. And so there, there's a difference between those two. The, yeah, personal, personal ethics is you turn the other cheek, you know, somebody wants to take your tunic, you have your cloak mm -hmm. as well. Um, you know, don't return evil for evil, return for evil with good. Uh, those that's that's personal that's you the between you and me between you and a fellow human being jesus really didn't talk about government 
ethics to speak. Emma, the so. coins, for example, uh, that was a very contentious issue. If you were to use coins with images of Caesar, and uh, he said, uh, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God's. I think that's really the only one. And I think basically he was saying at that point, respect the respect the government that's above you. Right. So. And because people weren't supposed to take action uh, in the face of the Roman government, they weren't supposed to start an up, zealot uprising, take right. up arms and overthrow the government. The idea was that soon God would come back. It was a moral reformation. They all had to clear their own hearts and God would bring bring the heavy lifting. He would bring back the our angel armies to kill the wicked. But the the thing is that happens at the end of uh, at the end of, at the final eschatology when we receive eternal life. Mm -hmm. That's what finally happened. Was was when did Jesus preach that that would happen? I don't think Jesus ever really did. Okay. Um, uh, so it's 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 one of that's one of those things he talks in and. Matthew 24 about the sun coming back in the clouds, but there's some question as to whether that's a judgment of Israel uh, or whether that's an end time, you know, which, which eschatology does that belong to? So uh, that's uh, that's the Matthew one, and I think that's mentioned in Luke as well. So I, I wrote a little bit of a paragraph about a, his time delineated prophecies of the end time. And this is on the blog, Reality is Not Optional, called The Worst Failed Biblical Prophecy, which is, of course, the coming apocalypse during Jesus's time that was taught by Jesus taught it, Paul taught it, to the 12 disciples taught it, and John the Baptist taught it. And uh, I'll just read the paragraph real quick, and we could jump to any of the text to, to see if I'm not pulling things out of context. Throughout Jesus's ministry, uh, the paragraph begins, the apocalypse was at hand, Matthew 4, 17, 10, 7, 21, 34, Mark 1, 15. People he spoke to would not die before it happened, Matthew 16, 27 through 28. That generation would not pass away before it came, Matthew 24, 25 through 34. Everyone would soon see the Son of Man sitting in the clouds, Matthew 26, 63 through 64. The disciples could not even go through the cities of Israel before it happened, Matthew 10, 23. Jesus even stated that the current age was when everything would occur, Luke 21, 22. And the end was nigh, Luke 21, 28. The people Jesus spoke to would see it just as they see spring, Luke 21, 31. Jesus chastised people for not seeing the time had come, Luke 12, 56. So there is some, some sort of indication, some sort of evidence that the time delineation of this prophecy of the end times coming true was to be within the lifetime of the hearers. Would you agree with that? Yes, and it happened. And it happened. Are you a preterist? Um, I don't like the term preterist because there's they say some weird things too, but they do have a point about some some especially this kind of language, uh, in that this generation is this generation the the end of the seventy weeks is is about AD seventy the the old covenant prophecies about the the end really seem to be referring to the end of the old covenant uh and i referred early to the earlier to the joel 2 uh 20 through 32 prophecy which peter says this is starting today um and so you have sort of the you have you know people prophesying you have people speaking in tongues you have visions you have dreams by ordinary people and that's really the the key element of the joel 2 thing is that you're going to have it's not going to be specific Messiah, specific anointed people that are going to be doing these things, but ordinary people, you know, men and women 
are going to be doing these things. And you see these signs occurring throughout Acts. And this was a sign to Israel um, that verses, I think it's 31 and 32 are going to come about where the, the moon turns to blood and the, um, you know, everybody who, everybody who is, or among those who escape will be those that are saved. So I don't, I can't pull that up or, or, or read it, but if you read the whole 28 through 32, the first part sounds great. And then the last part is, oh, those, that first part is a sign that the second part is about to happen. And so the, uh, the fact that, you know, the jewels were scattered from Jerusalem, uh, that uh, the, basically the, the Jewish leadership was destroyed at that point, which is kind of the, the moon turn, the moon, the moon turning to blood, sun turning red, moon turning, whatever that, whatever that phrase is, is an indication of the ending of the kingdom. In this case, it was the ending of the ruling of, of the Jews over Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a question, there, there's a side chat with Will Duffy about uh, dispensational changes in diet. And so Alezo Morales asks, where where's the verse where he doesn't require a specific diet? And he might be referring to Jesus, might re be referring to Paul. But I think That's one him. interesting thing is that Jesus taught kosher. So yeah, he did. Yeah. So uh, he didn't teach an abolition of the law. He didn't say no more circumcision. You don't really get that until you get to Paul. So uh, maybe right, yeah. That's in, true. Your, in your system, um, how does that change happen? If it does happen, uh, what, what are the dynamics of why they used to have to circumcise and now they don't? Well, the, the Jews live in a culture. And that culture is centered around the old covenant law. And so when Jews come to believe in Christ, um, they're just going to keep doing all the things that they've been doing all along. They, they don't even sure that they realize that circumcision is an old covenant thing. They don't realize that eating kosher and, and wearing clothes of, of one type and the whole thing. That's just a, it's, it's a part of life. It's kind of like how, you know, in America we go and vote. You know, we just think that's a normal thing that we do every, you know, every couple of years. We don't think it's a big deal because it's just a part of life. Um, maybe that's a, not the greatest example, but they are continuing to live in the Old Covenant because they're living among the people who live in the Old Covenant. If you start breaking Old Covenant rules while being around the Jewish leaders, they're going to kill you. So there's part of this is a cultural pressure of just continuing to live in the Old Covenant so that you're not... Um, making all the people around you mad at you. But the same token, uh, if you just start, you know, not following the law, um, th there are consequences for doing that. Paul even mentions in 1 Corinthians 9, um, he says, am I not free? And yet for, for those under the wall, a law, I become as one under the law, even though I am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And so it's kind of like our version of when in Rome, do as Rome, do as Rome does. Um, they're they're looking to reach the Jews in Jerusalem and in Samaria, <clears throat> and so they're living um, under the law so that they can so that they're not going to be offending them unnecessarily and driving them away from hearing hearing the gospel. Um, this really comes up when the uh, gospel is preached, and I believe in Antioch is where the first. Well, you have um, Cornelius, but Antioch is where you see the Gentiles first starting to come to Christ, and then they send. Who is it, Philip? They send somebody down there to basically pray over them. Uh, but then Paul begins preaching to the Gentiles, and it comes. The word comes back to the Jews. Well, Paul's not requiring them to be circumcised. He's not saying that they, you know, have to uh, abstain from eating meat. Uh, 
you know, they're not, he's telling them they don't have to follow the law. And that's why the Jews, that's why the Jerusalem uh, Acts 15 council happens in Jerusalem, because the Judaizers are basically saying, no, 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 the, the old covenant, it's still a thing. We still need to follow all of those things. Um, and then Peter comes and testifies about what he testifies to. And then Paul and Barnabas testify what they've seen among the Gentiles. And he's saying, look, they're, they're experiencing, you know, great faith. They're, they're serving and worshiping. They're earnest about Christ. And they, they, they don't, they don't feel any compunction to be under the law. And this is where James uh, finally has to make a ruling. And his ruling is basically, okay, um, basically avoid temple worship because the fornication is probably a reference to temple worship, although it can be extended beyond that. Um, eating meat sacrificed to idols, which again would be temple worship, and from blood, which again, blood rituals are a part of a, a temple worship kind of thing. So basically what James is telling the Jews in his ruling in Acts 15 is don't be syncretists. Don't, um, don't try to combine Christianity with the pagan temples that are around you. He's telling the Jews that I, I don't think the the end result of Acts 15 had to do with Jews. No, it's about Gentiles for sure. I mean, it, this is these are these are the rule. These basically the rules that James lays down for Paul to say when you go to the Gentiles, tell them these are the things they need to avoid. So, so one so, thing that I think is interesting from uh, some of the verses you threw out is that Paul calls the Jews under the law. He says, uh, "Oh." When, when I go to these individuals who are under the law, I act as one under the law. Yep. He seems to have some sort of distinction for him. And you think that's just a cultural distinction rather than an actual distinction. Like they have a different law that they're subject to that the Gentiles aren't. Is that the case? Well, the, the, the believing Jews aren't necessarily under that law. But by the same token, they have to continue to live live under those things because otherwise like i said they're going to be uh they're going to be ostracized uh, they're they're going to lose their witness among the jews i mean there there's the reason that paul lives as one under the law even though he's not under the law is so that he can reach those that are under the law and so the, the i think the the apostles that are in jerusalem are doing the same thing they're living under the law so that they can continue to talk to and reach people under the law and part of it is that the the early sort of the way movement that uh, especially was in Jerusalem for a very long time was considered considered an extension of Judaism. It wasn't it wasn't really a separate religion. They were kind of flying under the radar of, well, this is kind of this is Jesus's Judaism. And so and the reason for that was was that the Jews were um, uh, the, the Jews would have been terribly offended if you would have basically said don't um, excuse me you don't have to do any of that stuff anymore you can eat pork you can eat snakes you can have some shrimp um <clears throat> the jews would have been terribly offended by those things and that's why in acts 21 when paul goes back to jerusalem <clears throat> he says okay i'm going to do some of these things so that i'm not offending the people that are under the law uh, by basically living as he living as he would if he or, you know were in corinth and actually mm -hmm. while we're getting a little bit far afield here, but Paul actually calls Peter out for the same thing at Galatia. But that's yeah. No, I, th I think all that's relevant. So I think we're going to have a lot of agreement with what's happening in Acts 15. And I I wrote an article quite a while ago. Let's see what date this is. Like 2013. Wow, aren't I old? Okay. So, but this article is uh, basic questions about Acts 15 
uh, reading comprehension questions to get the reader to try to understand what's going on. I'm, I'm sure that we have a lot of agreement with what goes on here. In Acts 15, uh, Paul encounters some brethren or false brethren, however, if, if, if it's the same instant, uh, instance as is described in Galatians, he calls them false brethren. Um, but there's some sort of conflict about um, how to treat individuals such as Gentiles. And then there has to be a dispute resolution, which is brought to Jerusalem. And that's where you get, it looks like James presiding over this decision document, which is issued at the end of Acts 15. So do you want a quick run through these questions with me? And uh, sure. just, sure. just to talk about um, what's happening in Acts 15. Okay, Acts 15. My, my screen is full enough that I can't read. My eyesight is bad enough that I can't actually read the questions, so you don't have to read them out loud. All right, so who are these false brethren or the brethren, the, the interlocers who approach them in Acts 15.1? Some, um, so they are likely Jewish people that have traveled to um, someplace where Paul has preached yep. um, and had an opportunity to interact with the believers there and were somewhat shocked the believers weren't being circumcised and weren't being required to live under the old covenant law. Yes, absolutely. So that answers uh, one, two, and three. It says, where are they coming from? They're coming down from Judea per Acts 15, one. Yep. What do they believe? They believe that uh, Gentiles, uh, correct me if you don't uh, agree with this, they believe that Gentiles need to follow the Jewish laws such as circumcision and kosher. Yep. All right. Are th are these people Christians or are they uh, non-Christian Jews? I believe they are Christians. All right. I believe so as well. Do they accept the authority of the 12 disciples? Yes. Yeah, I think so as well. If not, for some people say they, they don't accept the authority of the 12. If not, why do the Christians accept their teachings? And why is the matter up-channeled to the 12 for final word? If the false brethren did accept the authority of the 12, were the false brethren teaching what? Oh, okay. So that's a different one. But I, I think it's self-evident that they do accept the authority of the 12 because that's where the resolution dispute is up channel two. If the false brethren did accept the authority of the 12, were the false brethren teaching what the 12 taught? Did they teach what James and Peter taught? Um, I'm not sure that they were teachers. Well, they're, they're uh, or, engaging with people in some sort of debate. So they're teaching something. Well, uh, it's... Well, either they're engaging in debate or they're just visiting a church. I mean, they might have gone to Corinth and realized that Paul had a church there. And so they went to visit the brothers in Corinth. Um, and then in just their interactions, I mean, the Corinth were natural debaters anyway. That's a whole other topic. But um, and it may not have been Corinth. It may have been someplace else. But the it's in just their interaction and watching how these Christians live, they're like, wait, they're not living like us. They're not living under the the rules of the old covenant they may even ask you been circumcised and um the corinthians or whoever it was said what you want you want me to what and they were like no we're not going to do that all didn't say we have to do that and so um I, I don't i don't think they were necessarily going to teaching they may have just been going to corinth and wanting to visit the church in corinth to see yeah. what it was like there and so they discovered that this was going on and they were like i can't believe that paul is not teaching them that they have to follow the law Right, so we'll, we'll accept that definition of teaching. <laughs> so they, they find out something that's going on they don't like, and so then they debate about it. Acts 15.2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, and so they're they're teaching something during this debate. So they're advocating something, right? They're advocating. Yeah, that's I would agree they're advocating. Do they advocate the same thing that the 12 advocated? 
Um, unclear. Okay, we can do um, that. Uh, are the false brethren teaching, or do they believe that they're teaching what the twelve teach? Um, probably. Yeah, I would say probably as well. Do the people that they are teaching believe that the twelve endorse their message? Do they believe it? I'm sure they probably do believe it. Yeah, I, th I think that's why Paul <clears throat> brings it up, up to try to bring it to them for resolution, because uh, the people that uh, he's going to be losing converts once they start moving to this other system, and he needs to get resolution from the top in order to stop this. Right. So, I think, well, and I think he's he's encountering things that the twelve have not, because the twelve have generally not left Jerusalem. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. So, They're still there. Yeah, I, I, that's I. Yeah, the conflict obviously. I mean, to me, this feels like a cultural conflict where, yeah, well, Jesus was a Jew and he lived under this system, and and so obviously everybody has to live under this system if you're going to be a Christian. I mean, that's just kind of the this is the way cultural shifts happen. Is you have people that are like, no, I want to maintain the current system, and you have people that are saying, no, we need to break the system because of X, Y, and Z reason, and so you have this conflict that occurs, and that's that's just a natural part of, of cultural development. All right, so do the Christians of Galatia already know the 12's answer on this issue? Um, unclear at best. Yeah, so if not, why not? So this is this is years, right? This is like uh, 10, 15 years after, after uh, Jesus' resurrection, at least, right? Could be. Well, because uh, Paul at least has the seven years after his conversion. Right, yeah. And then I, I guess the on... question is, um, was Paul the first one to go to Galatia? That's a good question. And, well, and, and the, other, well, the other half of the question is, um, had Peter been to Galatia at this point? That is a good question as well. So, uh, we, don't, we don't know those things. So part of it is under, we don't know exactly what the timeline is. It could be that Paul went to Galatia, um, taught there, basically preached the gospel, didn't require them to follow the law. And then some people from Judea came down and said, what's the deal here? You're not following the, the old covenant law. And then went back to, like a bunch of Karens, went back to the, uh, the, the 12 and said, he's not teaching them to follow the law. And then Paul and Barnabas had to come and explain themselves and I think that's the beginning. I think that's how it begins. It's, again, it's purely speculation at this point because we don't know exactly where right. what's the timeline has. You know, are these are these the actual Judaizers that Paul was writing against in Galatia, or is this um, people who don't like the ruling um, that come to Galatia and try to use their political influence to overturn it? It's, it's hard to say. I think the technical term for a group of Karens is a flock of Karens. No. Is it a flock? Okay. I, I don't know. <laughs> I would but, call it uh, a number of Karens, but I don't think that's probably appropriate. <laughs> that works. So some people think that the people disputing with Paul were not the same people as the men from Judea. I think you and I would agree that it's the men from Judea in verse 2 that are the disputers with Paul. Yeah. Right? The only thing, the, But I would not say it was necessarily the same people that are the Judaizers that Paul is writing against. Paul's writing against the Galatians. Right. Yes. Not necessarily the same group. Okay, so what is the dispute about? Uh, I think you would agree, I would agree about um, circumcision and kosher and things like that, right? 
And so what's the resolution? I think both you and I would agree to up-channel this for further comment. Who goes with Paul to find the answer? Let's, let's take a look. It says, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And so it's a big group of them kind of going. So everyone kind of wants this answer here. If not the false brethren, some people think that these these people from Judea were like not Christians, and so they're not going to go to get resolution from uh, James and the twelve. And so I think you and I would agree that that's actually not the case. That these these brethren uh, were were the men from Judea and going to get this resolution. Probably yes. So the purpose of bringing this matter to Jerusalem is to get a get a final ruling on this dispute. Will the declaration of the 12 silence the false brethren or the people from Judea? I would say, yes, it would, because they are seen as authorities. Some people just um, want to... No? I, not all of them, I don't think. Well, that could be the case. Uh, I think I think this the ruling probably divides the, the, the men from Judea, because there are some that are going to be saying, that's just, that's just poppycock. Um, and some of them are going to say, yeah, we need to respect the ruling of the 12. So, again, it's, it's. I mean, I don't want to bring it back to personality type, but there are some personality types that are just not going to accept change. True. So we'll just talk so, about, like, generalities. So, like, later in Acts 15, um, everyone cheers the decision. So yep. it, it kind of treats people as a group. Yep. I think generally these these individuals, all the parties so far that we're talking about, would accept the decision of James and the 12. Generally, yes. Generally. All right, so on the way to Jerusalem, what does Paul declare? And uh, let's see. It says, so being sent on, on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in great detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all brothers. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Paul seems to be converting Gentiles on his way up. All right. Yeah, so what? What he does. <laughs> yeah, that's what he does. He converts Gentiles. And so what happens when Paul reaches uh, Jerusalem? Acts 4, he's welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Probably a lot to do with the conversion of the Gentiles. Okay, so now there's a new contingent of believers. And uh, who are... It could be the old contingent, Acts 15.5, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, so are these Pharisees Christians? Likely. Yeah, likely Christian Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So all these Gentiles that he seems to have converted up to this point and on his way to Jerusalem are not circumcised, and he had no intention of making them circumcised. And so it looks like a, a sect of Christians are raising up saying that they need to circumcise. Yes, bunch of bunch of church leaders. All right. And so the apostles and elders gather together. We're going to skip over some of these mm -hmm. questions because we're pretty pretty in okay. agreement here. All right. So if the teaching of the 12 is clear, because this is this is a new matter that they're taking up, right? Acts 15, 6. It doesn't seem like up to this point, um, years, maybe decades, at least a decade maybe, after Jesus, that they hadn't decided on this matter. Well, part of the part of the issue was that they weren't leaving Jerusalem. I mean, you have Acts, ooh, what chapter is it, 4? 
they go to Samaria. Um, but you see the actions of most of the apostles are in and around Jerusalem. They don't leave Israel. Yeah, that's true. So they don't have any reason to address this because number one, to do that would be detrimental to their ministry. Um, and number two, they don't have a reason to, to even think about it because this is just, I mean, it's the water they swim in. Uh, so uh, there's no, no real reason. I mean, even Peter doesn't go to Cornelius and Acts till Acts 10 and Cornelius right. is, is a, a, a God follower. So likely is following some of those, some of those laws anyway, although Peter does encounter the, um, the vision with the sheet that basically yeah. says, yeah, he's clean. You can go stay in his house now. So the breaking of the law is already beginning with Peter. Uh, and I think that that kind of begins that process and then which ends in Acts 15. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a debate that happens in Acts 15, 7. And so they're debating this issue. It's, so it seems like there's various parties advocating various positions. Do you believe that this is all about uh, culture rather than than what people need to do to be believers? Um, can I say yes? Uh, you, you're talking about yeah, like the yeah you can say that. Yes, I believe it's cultural. Okay. Um, the the Jews, obviously, I mean, the the old covenant law and the rules and everything around that is is literally the fish tank they live in. I mean, it's it's the the painting on the wall. It's the you know the TV that's always on. It's it's just the it's everyday life. It's how they do everything. It literally it defines everything that they do as Jewish people. So um, to them, it's going to be, well, you know, when you become a Christian, you're going to have to come live like class. It's kind of like the errors that uh, the West people in the West have made in going to Africa um, and then insisting that the people who are converted in Africa now live a Western lifestyle. Um, and actually interesting story about that. I was in Kenya um, and visited a Baptist church and um, they actually started singing Western hymns. <laughs> um, and so it, it was a very, you can tell it was a Baptist church by the way <laughs> that they performed their services. And um, it, there was a lot of imposition of, of Western traditions and Western thinking within the context of that church. So right down to the Bible thumping uh, preaching style. So I think that's, that is a common a common, I guess, problem in that, well, if you're going to take on my religion, you have to take on all of the cultural aspects that I believe about my religion as well. And I think that's, that, that's probably what, probably the error that the Jews were falling into. All right. Uh, so since we have a lot of agreement so far, um, I think, I think our main disagreement is whether Acts 15 is describing some sort of cultural feature, like, uh, you know, th these are kind of like, you know, maybe like baptism is for people who don't think baptism is salvific. Uh, like right. I see baptism as initiation into the cult, a cult in a generic term, like initiation yeah. into Christianity, uh, declaring your Christianity to the world. Yeah. So it's, in my, in my view, uh, baptism's not salvific, but it is just one of those rituals that you perform. So the yeah, question is, um, it's it's a little bit bigger than that because, like I said, the this is I mean the old covenant literally defined every aspect of life for the Jew, um, and so 
they associated all of the Jewish culture and all of the things that they did with Christianity. If you're going to be a Christian, you got to live like me. Um, and so that's the, the, they're basically saying um, these Gentiles need to adopt our culture and everything that we know about the old covenant in order to be Christians. Uh, and uh, that's just, I mean, you, you understand why they're saying that because this is all that they've ever known. Um, but it's not necessarily not necessarily the case. So, all right. So uh, we'll kind of move on. There's an impassioned speech by uh, Peter, mm-hmm. and then after that, um, <laughs> this this verse is pretty funny. Acts fifteen eight. I don't know if you know the whole thing where where in the New King James it says, "Known to God from eternity are all His works," but the ESV just has "known from old," and it's a it's a textual criticism thing. Yep. And the, the Calvinists like to latch on to the New King James translation and, and try to discount the uh, ESV translation of that because it doesn't fit their theology. Well, that's, that's just a yeah. side point. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. It's, it's, a, it's an idiom, so yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, he knows it from a long time ago. And so um, Acts 15, 19, this, this seems to be going towards the conclusion and uh, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So is, is this about the Jews? Is he telling the Jews that they don't have to do these things? Any symbolic law? Well, the, the question is not whether the Jews are going to continue or not continue these things. The question is, do the, are we going to require the Gentiles to do them? I think there is general agreement that the Jews are going to continue to simply because this is what we do. We're not going to just suddenly modify our entire lives and our entire culture around this thing. Um, so, I mean, the, the, and again, you you can go back to Galatians and say, Peter calls Paul or Paul calls Peter out for first living like the Gentiles. And I love the pastor who once said, um, you know, some Judaizers came from Jerusalem. They saw a little bit of bacon grease running down uh, Peter's chin. Um, and then he withdrew from the Gentiles and Peter calls him out for being a hypocrite for, um, basically pulling back from, from the Acts 15 council. And so if, if Peter is living like the Gentiles and he's already breaking the law by, you know, even going and visiting Cornelius, but also, you know, staying with the Gentiles and then withdrawing and be called, being called a hypocrite for that. Uh, it would seem to me that uh, Peter would be, it would have to be a member of the body of Christ. If Paul is going to call him out for being a hypocrite about withdrawing, rather than calling him a hypocrite for not living under the old covenant law. Mm-hmm. And Paul pretty clearly calls him out for, for withdrawing from the Gentiles. Yeah, so. absolutely. And so it seems like Peter was not acknowledging the truth of the declaration that happens in Acts 15. No, he's, he, no, he is acknowledging initially, but then when Judaizers came oh, in, yeah. yes, he's, as soon as he's under scrutiny, as, yeah, as basically, basically saying, you know, well, they're saying this and, and I'm just going to kind of hang out with these guys. And that would, that withdrawal I think would be seen as a, uh, I don't know, offense might be too strong, but as a, uh, I guess I'll just say an offense to the Gentiles. Like, dude, you were just eating bacon with us yesterday. What's the deal? What are you, why are you not coming over my house anymore? So yeah, I think that's what Paul's calling about. All right. Uh, and so, uh, Here's the judgment. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted to idols, sexual immorality, and what has been strangled and from blood, as you've already 
mention these things is, is the dispute resolution in this passage. And uh, they actually write a letter to that effect. And it says to the brothers, both the apostles and elders, the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, greetings. And says, uh, some of you have troubled other individuals. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas. I'm, I'm just kind of skipping around here. Yep. Judas and Silas, because for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than the requirements. That you abstain from what's been sacrificed, from blood, sexual immorality, and so forth. And, and so this is a Gentile-centric declaration, right? It's, it's not a declaration for the Jews that the Jews don't have to follow kosher anymore, that the Jews don't have to circumcise anymore. I would say that it would apply to the Jews, but you don't actually have any Jews that want to do that. Okay. So I, I would say that that would extend to, again, because of the Peter situation in Galatia, um, I believe that would extend to any Jews that don't want to do that anymore. But like I said, if they want to be continued, um, you know, in their uh, in their covenant community, if they want to be able to go to, over to grandpa's for Sabbat, um, they, they need to continue to do that, to continue to have fellowship in that community. So um, it's not a concern for the Jews because the Jews are going to keep doing it because they need to keep doing it. All right. So how I see this is that, um, this is an issue that hasn't come up in their their world so far. Uh, a decade after Jesus's death, they have not considered the Gentile place in the scheme or if Gentiles should be required to circumcise and keep a normal Old Testament type covenant type law, which was a really serious deal um, that uh, Jesus even said not one jot or tittle of the law will uh will go until the fullness of the times, which seems to be idiomatically for it'll never go away. The, the law well, is there to stay, right? Did well, and the, the law, I mean, the law was never destroyed. It was just that the Jews were to enter the new covenant, which was a new law. So it, it wasn't that the law went away, it's that the people went under a new law. So that's the, at the time, the Jews were accusing him of basically saying, well, you just want to do away with elements of the law. Are you basically that he was attacking their traditions and they thought he was saying, you don't have to follow the old covenant law anymore. And Jesus is saying, oh, the law is not going to change. I'm not going to preach anything that says you're going to have to change any laws. And so really kind of putting that, uh, that rumor, that accusation yeah. to rest um, in that moment. But again, the Jesus didn't change any laws. It's just the new covenant established a, a new law. So, yeah. All right. So uh, I, th I think we're pretty much in agreement what happens in Acts 15, except for some of the implications. Right. Yeah. It's the Again, it, it, the Jews wouldn't be concerned with doing this because they weren't going to stop anyway. So. Yeah. Believe it or not, I've, I've been uh, kicked out of a church over Acts 15. So I'm, I'm surprised that we're we're so much in agreement over it. Uh, good times. Okay, so now let's fast forward to Acts 21. We, we see a second meeting between uh, Paul and uh, James and what appears to be the 12, in which things are kind of coming to a head. There's, there's another conflict, another meeting after some time has come about. And you've already alluded to the events in Acts 21. And so you see this as... So uh, just to get the story straight for everyone else, uh, Paul comes and meets James again. There's a secret meeting in which 
Well, James, can, we go back, can we go back a chapter? Because I believe yeah. this is the time when um, the Holy Spirit directs Paul go to Jerusalem. Okay. And the he, there's actually a prophecy where um, somebody takes a belt off and ties his hands together. If you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. Yeah. So this isn't a matter of Paul shows up at Jerusalem. Paul is summoned to Jerusalem by the 12. He's directed by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. If I remember correctly, is that I believe that's correct, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Which uh, shows the flexibility of prophecy in open theism. He had a choice of whether or not to go, knowing full well consequences. Prophecy is flexible. If you do this, then this is going to happen, and then he could make a decision, change the future. Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure Paul said the Holy Spirit is compelling me to go. So yeah, I mean, obviously he had a choice, but yeah, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Um, and so. Uh, he knows that there's animosity between him and the Jews, the, circumcis the circumcision sect. Yeah. In, uh, in Galatians, he writes, uh, the circumcision is the reason that he's in jail. And, and we see that come to the head in Acts 21 when yeah. he is arrested for the reason of circumcision. That, that's, that's why he's, he's pulled out. Uh, there's a mob that tries to kill him uh -huh. um, because they heard something which is very scandalous. Uh, and and uh, tell me if you agree with this. They heard the rumor that he was teaching Jews not to circumcise. Is that correct? Well, uh, number one, is that the reason that they were writing against him? Um, probably. Um, he the. If I remember the text correctly, maybe I should just pull it up. Yeah, we, we get it in Acts 21, 21. So he comes to yeah. Jerusalem, Acts 21, 17. And then he goes in to visit with James and all the elders. After yeah. greeting him, he related one by one the things God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He had, he had actually some clout in Christianity. He had a big following of Gentiles. They hear it, they glorify God. And then they say to him, you see, brother... How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believed? So these are believing Jews. Uh, these are not like religious Jews who reject Christ. These are believing Jews who believe Jesus. They are all zealous for the law. Mm -hmm. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. And so this mob that's forming... Yep. Yeah, yeah. It seems like the specific reason is because they have heard that he is teaching, that Paul is teaching Jews not to circumcise. Right, yeah. So, it, it, number one, it, is Paul teaching Jews not to circumcise? Is it an accurate rumor or not an accurate rumor? Um, unclear. I, I would think that he 100% is teaching Jews not to circumcise. I well, given that Paul is pretty clear that he wants to be all things to all people, so that by all possible means he might save some. Um, I, I suppose he would be making a judgment call as to whether calling the Jews to stop doing sort of the most basic Jewish thing that you can do would be beneficial in the communities where they live, and I suspect yeah. that it would not be. Well, well, it depends so, uh, how what percentage of the population there is versus the God-fearers, the Gentiles. And so I, I wouldn't yeah. think that he would teach it in Jerusalem, 
but maybe a Roman province in uh, modern day Turkey that's uh, far out there with maybe a small community with a lot of God fears, he might actually teach that there, right? It, I mean, it's, it's possible, but we don't have any evidence from any of Paul's writings or from Acts as to whether he's actually doing it or not. Mm -hmm. um, I could, I mean, if you, if you wanted to get a group of people riled up against a particular, a group of Jews riled up against a particular individual teacher, this is the thing you would say. And so the question is whether they are telling the truth or whether they are lying in order to try and overturn the Acts 15 council. Mm -hmm. Because we've already seen that we have people that went to Galatia to try to overturn the Acts 15 council. Um, and Paul has to write against them. Um, and so this may be another case of that. They may have gotten a hold of the letter to Galatians and basically said, you know, showed, hey, you know, he's saying that we should just go ahead and emasculate ourselves because we we want people to circumcise. And it's, it's so they may be intentionally, unintentionally misrepresenting what Paul is teaching. Uh, they may be trying simply to to uh, get a crowd to be rise to rise up and kill Paul. I mean, there's a any number of possibilities. So it's difficult to say from this text that Paul is teaching or isn't teaching. It's just that they are. Oh yeah. Him. It's it, it, it would definitely, we don't find the answer in Acts 21. <laughs> you just have to look at Paul's wider ministry to entertain the question. Is he teaching circumcision uh, that the Jews don't have to circumcise? And in Romans, I think he makes a pretty compelling case that the Jews don't have to circumcise. Do you think um, that that case made in, in Romans? Romans too? I don't think so. Um, I think in Romans 2, he's trying to, he's basically, because if you look at Romans 2, 12 to 14, 12 to 16, he says Gentiles without the law uh, become a law unto themselves when they do things to law. That's the basis for judgment against them. And so he's flipping that around on the Jews and saying, but even you Jews who do have the law um, and you practice circumcision, if you haven't circumcised your hearts, which basically means to, you know, to perfectly follow the law, then your physical circumcision isn't doing you any good. Uh, and then that leads into Romans 3, which at the end of 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. His point really there is that both you, both the Jews that don't have the Gentiles and the Jews who do, or Jew, the Gentiles who don't have the law and the Jews who do have the law, none here have followed it. So this, none of this, none of this attempting to do right or follow the law is doing y'all any good anyway. So I don't think mm -hmm. he's teaching necessarily that you don't have to be circumcised. I think what he's saying is that um, the the circumcision of the heart or the spirit—I don't want to call it spiritual circumcision. I don't think that's what he calls it. Yeah, he, he definitely downgrades circumcision. <laughs> he doesn't. Well, he 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 says well, and basically what he's saying is that just because you've been physically circumcised, if you're if you're not obeying the law, it's not doing you any good. And basically, if you can go through all of the Old Testament prophets and and God basically says, look, all of your all of your righteous acts, all of your attempts to follow the law are like filthy rags in front of you because of your sin. And I think Paul is simply the saying the same thing here. He's like, you've been circumcised. Big deal. You're sinning. You're not following the law. So you're under condemnation, too. So while you, you had an advantage by having the law, you didn't follow it. And so everybody's under sin. And that's the only point that he's making is that you're you're just being circumcised doesn't do you any good if you're not obeying the law. Yeah. I think that's all that he's saying. Uh, I, I could see that position. I, I do think that he was teaching Jews not to circumcise. But you would agree, though, that, well, you your position would be that 
Uh, James and the 12 didn't think that circumcision was crucial for a salvation status for the Jews. It's unclear, but I think, I think, I think after the Acts 15 Council, I think they probably started thinking that way anyway. But before then, they were not thinking that circumcision was optional. Before then, they had no reason to think about it. And so the, the status quo of living under the Old Covenant law would have been what they considered to be normal. Would they have considered circumcision a necessary requirement for a salvation or righteousness with God or anything like that? before the Acts 15 Council? Um, only, in this, only in the sense that they were basically still living under the same rules. It's um, trying to think of a good example. Um, not come back with one presently, but I, I, think, I don't think it's something that ever crossed their minds. I think if you would have asked them, they would have said, they might have said, well, yeah, maybe, but yeah, so we got a comment from Future Not Fixed, Acts 21-24. I have a hard time trying to imagine James and the elders counseling Paul and company to shave their heads to make his teaching a lie. Well, um, that would be a good point, except for I believe that James and those elders still considered circumcision very much necessary. And so this is part of their rebuke of Paul's teaching. Paul telling Jews not to circumcise is an act that they didn't like. So back when we were first describing how how dispensationalism, how you could say that there's Acts 9 dispensationalists and 2, and then in, then out, and then my position was out, and that there's tension and passive aggressiveness between the two camps, this is where one of the places you would see it come to a head in which James forces Paul to humiliate himself and basically go back on something that he had been teaching. And uh, uh, let's well, see, I, th I think it was Rita Aslan talks about this in his book, that that's what happened here. That, that seems to be a common scholarly take on it. That's that's one take. The other take is that they're playing politics. They um, are playing politics, yeah. Well, but they're, they are, they're playing politics and saying, Paul, we don't want you to be killed by this mob. Because that was basically what was stirring up was it was an angry mob that were going and it didn't work anyway because if you read the next section they, yeah. they were stirred up against him anyway even after he did this so I think that's what they were trying to avoid the angry mob that actually occurs anyway by having Paul do some things um, that were old covenant specific that looked like he was you know taking vows and doing all the things you know kind of. They, again, the, the First Corinthians nine thing. To those under the law, I became one as one under the law, though I am not under the law. So, he, in this sense, he's he's doing what he said in First Corinthians nine and becoming as one under the law, so as to win those that are under the law. Yeah, he would have shown up and said, "Yep, you're right. I'm teaching both Jews and Gentiles. They don't have to be circumcised." Um, not only would he have, have seriously offended and caused serious damage to the believers in Jerusalem, but they would have killed him on the spot. And so I think the the purpose here is to let's not stir the pot any more than it's stirred already, and let's try to do some things to try to calm down the inflamed passions that are occurring here. Yeah, I think and Paul I think had expended. I think they're. I think they're. I think Paul and James. James is basically telling Paul, "Let's try just to you know calm things down and have you do this," and it didn't work anyway. So. 
Yeah, I think Paul at this point has expended all his political capital and he's in an unfriendly city. So it's a different <laughs> political dynamic than you would have in Galatians where he's emboldened enough to confront Peter to his face. And, and so I don't, I don't know if there's going to be, if, if it was Peter here instead of James, I don't think Paul necessarily would have uh, confronted Peter in the same way um, yeah, in this political I, I, climate. I think Paul's concern for the Jews um, is sufficient that he would have done the same thing or some, maybe not this specifically, but would have done, would have begun living at a kosher lifestyle and doing all the kosher things among the Jews uh, for that same, for the same reason. So I, I, don't, I don't think James and Paul are in disagreement here. I think they're both saying, let's not stir the pot. Let's not offend people. Let's not send people away from Christ simply for the purpose of, you know, telling them, yes, Gentiles don't have to do this. Let's, you know, uh, he's, he's living by, consistent by his own word in 1 Corinthians 9. Mm -hmm. And so the, there's, there's a declaration. They tell, uh, because the crowd is impassioned, uh, because uh, they have heard that Paul is teaching, they, they have heard, this is the rumors that have come to the crowd, that Paul is teaching the Jews not to circumcise, James sets down a purification ritual for Paul to go through. He says, take these men, purify yourselves along with them, and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Uh, Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So yep. James is is uh, wanting these procedures to tell the crowd that Paul does not does not teach Jews not to circumcise. Correct. Yep. That's the purpose of all of this. To to create that perception. Yes. And so you think this is a cultural thing? You think that um, that this is we're we're putting on this show just to. Uh, you know, the, the, the 12 disciples, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but your position is the 12 disciples see circumcision as cultural, and they're going to force Paul to go through this ritual in order to prove to everyone that he's not teaching the Jews to do a cultural thing. I don't think he's being forced to do so. I think Paul is consulting with them as to how do we deal with this. And James says, okay, Based upon what's been going on in Jerusalem the last, you know, since you've been gone, this would be the best way to try to quell the crowd. Yeah, we, we get a very noticeable absence of Paul's perspective in these oh, yeah. passages. Well, I mean, yeah, it's Paul you know, submits himself to an extent to the leadership of the 12. And so that's, I don't see a problem with that. All right. So here's a question. Would the Jews think Paul shaved his head, therefore he believes in circumcision? Would they connect the dots that way realistically? I, th I think yep. the idea was if he is seen doing ceremonial ritual type acts, they're, they're, the bigger problem is circumcision often just is, is a code word for the law in general. Yep. Uh, kosher law, uh, following the Sabbath, things like that. And so they've heard that he's an anti-law individual. And him being seen doing this, these ritual observations might, in fact, make someone believe that he had either uh, recanted or the rumors weren't true. Correct. So James James wants to again, yeah, quell the mobs, and uh, but I think it's interesting that he's emphatic about this is not, not necessarily emphatic, but 
his purpose is that the people in Jerusalem, the end result is that they do not think that Paul is teaching the Jews to not circumcise. Yep. I, I don't see... I don't see that as just a culturally based thing because of of how important it is to everyone, and especially if James is in charge of the church at this point, and if their position is really this is just cultural, um, they this this perception is is not uh, known among believers. These are Christians, as we've talked about, who are the ones who have these concerns, right? Yeah. Um- yeah, it's it's kind of like um, a, you know somebody who believes in in paedo baptism going and preaching in a Baptist church. You don't preach about paedo baptism. So, um, ac- so ac- oh, go ahead. So it, it's again, it's it's about the crowds, um, because again, teaching that Paul said is teaching amongst the Jews they don't have to be circumcised anymore would be the best way to inflame a crowd really quick. Uh, and regardless of what has happened, they are already inflamed. And so the the attempt to uh, to jump into this this I think it's I, I'm not even sure it's required. It's kind of an optional purification ritual from having been among the Gentiles <coughs> and then <coughs> for purifying yourself before you come into the city and, and interact with the, the the Jews, you know, without being ritually pure. He's he's demonstrating he's saying that that that's what. Basically, James is saying that let's let's have you go through this whole thing so that we can maybe convince the Jews otherwise, which it didn't work. So, <laughs> all right. So, I'd I'd like to pull up real quick uh, Rita Aslan's paragraph on this, mm-hmm. and then you could uh, you could tell me what you think. This is from Rita Aslan's book Zealot. Regardless, by the year uh, fifty-seven C, the rumors about Paul's teaching can no longer be ignored. So once again, he is summoned to Jerusalem to answer for himself. And of course, you would take issue in that summoning language. This yeah, time, the, the yeah. is clear that the Holy Spirit tells him to go. So, mm-hmm. yeah. At this time, James confronts Paul directly, telling him that it has come to his attention that Paul has been teaching believers to forsake Moses and not circumcise their children or observe the customs of the law. Paul does not respond to the accusation, though this is exactly what he has been teaching. He has even gone so far as to say that those who let themselves be circumcised will have cut themselves off from Christ, Galatians 5, 2 through 4. To clear up matters once and for all, James forces Paul to take part with four other men in a strict purification ritual in the temple, the same temple that Paul believes has been replaced by the blood of Jesus. So that all, this is a quote, all will know that there's nothing to the rumors said about you and that you observe and guard the law. Paul obeys. He seems to have no other choice in the matter. After the embarrassing spectacle at the temple in which he was forced to renounce everything he had been preaching for two decades, Paul wanted to get as far away as he could from Jerusalem and the ever-tightening noose of control placed around his neck by James and the apostles. Besides, Rome seemed the perfect place for Paul. That's that's a lot of speculation. That is a lot of speculation. And I, I think it, the error begins with he's being summoned. He hasn't been summoned. He's been compelled by the Holy Spirit. Um, and I mean that's that's a version of things that you might read into this. But there's, uh, yeah, the fact that there's a confrontation, the fact that James is forcing him to do this, that's that's not. 
the, the I don't I don't believe that's the tenor of the text. So, and honestly, if Paul, if Paul wanted to leave, Paul could have turned around and left. I mean, it wasn't as though, you know, James was saying you're going to stay here until you answer these questions. That's not in the text. Paul goes because the Holy Spirit summons him to go. And if Paul said, "I've had enough of this, I'm out of here," he could have turned around and left. There was there was nothing compelling him to stay there. Um, you know, being arrested was not his was not his preference. He uh, appealed to Rome uh, to basically avoid being killed by the crowd. So, or being killed by the actually the local government, I guess. Yes. Uh, again, uh, we we don't have very much of Paul's motivations yeah. within these chapters. So, a lot of what we're talking about <laughs> is speculative on both sides. I would say. Well, Paul's being beaten by the by the soldiers, which was wrong to do to a Roman citizen anyway. Um, so, and this, so that's kind of why his appeal is, you know, I got this mob saying, you know, away with him, crucify him. I've got these Roman soldiers that are beating me, and I'm so quite honestly, I'm I'm not going to put up with this. And says basically says, you know, let me let me speak to the people. That doesn't work. So he appeals to Rome. Um, and that's so that's the way he goes, and that's the way he's avoiding being put to death, basically. As you look at verse 36, the uh, the mob outside followed, crying away with him, which means put him to death, right? Yeah, absolutely. They they did they did want him dead, yeah, 100%. And, and that's really what he's what he's doing, he's forcing the Roman soldiers to give him protection as a Roman citizen and to ensure basically they were. Um, duty bound at that point to ensure that he arrived in Rome alive. Mm -hmm. So that's he's basically uh, uh, binding the soldiers that hear him say this to to his life. <laughs> yeah, uh, Paul. I think he who maneuvers out of this pretty well. Yep. And so uh, you you do see though that circumcision is extremely important to the point of death in these people and yep. it seems like james shares their concerns right because he wants paul to prove to the crowd that paul's not teaching the jews not to circumcise no paul is, james is concerned with the political situation of an uprising of christian jews um against paul and potentially against the gentiles and that so, that's one motive it's that's not explicit in the text that that's it, his it is, main it concern. isn't explicit but there's there's the again because of Paul's willingness to be to be to be a Jew among the Jews, um, it, I would say that Paul would be would be in agreement with James's um, uh, with James's statement about what to do, because basically Paul wants Paul would want to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so you've already referenced Galatians. There's there's. Uh... Uh, it seems like when Paul is in chains, he probably in Rome, uh, the, in Galatians, there seems to be a repeat of the event that happened in Acts 15, where there's people from James. In this case, I think James is specifically mentioned. <coughs> people come from James, uh, and they still teach uh, the Jews, or not the Jews, the Gentiles to circumcise. Is that is that your understanding of uh, Galatians 2? Um, I 
Uh, 212 is where that, that reference to the James's people. For when certain men came from James, he's eaten with the Gentiles. So when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So that's that's a third incident of uh, yeah. Judaizers or Judaizing or or some sort of party from Jerusalem shaking things up in the Paul uh, the Paul's territory. Sure. We'll say. Uh, and it's it's quite likely that uh, not likely but possible that. Uh, James is just having a, a problem with this in Jerusalem and is not able to resolve it. Uh, or maybe is burying his head in the sand to, the ex to some extent. So, um, yeah, it's, diff it's difficult to say what, you know, certain men came from James. Well, the, the, Jew the believers in Acts 21 were presumably from James as well. So. Yeah, I would say they were. I, I would say that they are in agreement with him about circumcision and... I don't and know, the I Jews agreed with him. I think that they would assume that James agreed with with them because he wasn't dealing with it. Well, they seem to be of such a stature that it would make Peter change his conduct, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, no question about that. I mean, at the if you've ever been the pastor of a church, you know that the conduct of important people, important lay people in the church, will cause you to do or not do certain things. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, it's possible that Peter is simply afraid that these um, that these Judaizers are going to, you know, haul him back to Jerusalem to face the same crowd that Pete, that Paul faced. So, mm -hmm. he knows. so in Galatians, the letter starts off with Paul giving a brief brief summary of his ministry. Yep, that he's he's called by God, um, and this seems to factor very importantly. His appeals to authority is that he has a direct line of authority from God. Jesus uh, appeared to him directly and gave him the mission directly. And this mission is to the Gentiles. He says he, yes. he, didn't, he didn't talk to anyone else. He didn't consult with them. Yep. He mentions there was a brief meeting, but he didn't get anything from those people. Yep. So he's, he's pretty emphatic that his authority is, does not flow through James and Peter. Correct. Why would he be doing that? Uh, he considers himself to be an apostle that's equal to them. He's, he, he says, I am an apostle, although one abnormally born. So he, he does not want to give the impression that, that he is any way, in any way under or subordinate to the other 11. Why would he uh, be trying to teach the Galatians that, that, that uh, information? Why? Well, probably because Peter and the Judaizers were there. And they were claiming to speak with the authority of James. And so if they believed that Paul was subordinate to James, then they could just say, well, James said this, therefore discard. Yeah, so would I, I would agree. His, yeah. His direct authority from Christ to speak to this issue. So uh, look how emphatic his language is. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. So he, he considers this very serious. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so what is his fears? That his readers will believe the, the men from James, and um, then what would be what would be bad about that? I'm sure I'm sure that they basically were trying to discount and to make Paul subordinate in any way they possibly could. I mean, if, if they were, you know, truly trying to subvert X the X15 Council, they would have to uh, deal with what Paul was teaching, and they're basically saying, "Well, we're coming from James, and James is the 
James is the head honcho. Paul is just, you know, he's one of us, but he's not teaching the right things. And yeah. So Paul is saying, look, I didn't learn anything from them. I got everything I was taught directly from Christ, just like they did. All or right. So he, he calls this say. his gospel, right? He says, I went up because of a revelation and set forth before them, though privately, he's talking about the 12 disciples, okay. the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order yep. to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. What's the gospel that he's preaching to the Gentiles? Oh, the, more or less the same gospel that, that James or Peter would have taught, um, at least to Gentiles. I mean, they didn't have much opportunity to do that, so it's probably somewhat less developed. But um, he's basically, it's you know, Jesus Christ and, and him crucified. Um, he has them drinking the cup of the covenant. Um, you know, it's, it's, the same, it's, it's the same thing. And so it looks like he ties this to circumcision because the very next verse he says, even Titus, who is with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though yep. he was Greek. Mm -hmm. And so it, it appears his gospel that he's teaching to the Gentiles does not include circumcision. And this is one of the key features of that. What's going on here? The point of contention in Galatians 2, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, 2 4. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, so they might bring us into slavery. And so how's he using that word slavery in, in regards to circumcision? No following the law. I mean, you said yourself that circumcision is a symbol for following the entire law. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think so too. Also, uh, if you're a Gentile, uh, <laughs> circumcision you might be very happy if the circumcision requirement uh, goes away. I think that's one of the, one of the key features of his his popularity. The gen <laughs> Gentiles who are God fearers who wouldn't take that last step found and found something that they that made them happy. And so, well, yeah, it would have been it would have been physically offensive to a Roman person, a Gentile of that area, to be circumcised. Yeah. So. He says, to them, we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And, and so we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What, what's, what's his concern with them subverting the gospel? Um, basically mixing works, mixing uh, works of the law with grace for salvation. Is that... Is that the idea that they're teaching that the people from, well, we'll assume that the interlocutors in that he's he's uh, tangentially referencing in Galatians two are probably from Judea, maybe from James, and they're teaching that circumcision is a gospel issue. They're they're teaching that following the old covenant law is a gospel issue, <laughs> and Paul is using sort of circumcision as the point of that reference. Yeah, so the question is, does James and the Twelve think that circumcision and the rest of the law is a gospel issue? No. No? And, and that's that's evidenced by Peter's action. If Peter thought that obeying the law was a requirement for salvation, he wouldn't have been, you know, eating bacon and, and staying at, at Gentiles' houses and... I, I don't actually think he's eating bacon. Well, okay, I'm I'm using. Uh, yeah, I, yeah well, I, I think I mean, he was. He, he would he, was, he wouldn't be doing things that if people who thought that Jews should be obeying the law 
should do, he wouldn't he wouldn't have to have changed anything that he was doing. It doesn't seem like he is violating any Old Testament prescriptions, right? Well, no, it's, it's pretty obvious that he is, because if he wasn't violating Old Testament prescriptions, then he wouldn't have had to have changed anything. Well, because there's <laughs> cultural prescriptions on top of that, and just the association. Well, like the, uh, probably the most obvious one is the Jews were told, do not stay in the house of a Gentile. That's an old covenant law. And so probably what Peter is doing is he's spending the night at, or, you know, spending the night at Gentiles' houses somewhere, um, basically being among the church and, and participating with the Gentiles and all those things. And these Jews come around, they're like, dude, you're breaking the law. Um, and so Peter withdraws, and that's what I think what you see with the withdrawal is he's, he withdraws from the community, from participating in the community the way that the church participates in community in order to fall back into the law. Yeah, I, I see it as uh, I don't. I don't even think he was confronted by these people. I think just their presence that's quite inspired possible. him to withdraw. That's that, that's, that's how I've always envisioned it. If if that were the case, then that's that's peer pressure. Uh, if Peter thought that obeying the old covenant law was a salvific issue, we wouldn't have been doing it in the first place. Yeah. So uh, Paul's very inflamed about the circumcision. Uh, he he basically says if you're if you start doing the works of the law in Galatians, you're cursed to do all the works of the law. Yep. If if you're if they are a if you are considering them as a requirement for salvation, yes. And it seems like his interlocutors do in fact believe <clears throat> yep. that that these works are a requirement. You yep. agree with that? You, yep. you would just draw the disconnect between his interlocutors and the people from whom they're coming uh, in Judea, right? You think these are rogue actors? Um, I'm not going to necessarily say rogue. I'm going to say un ignorant, maybe. Because I, I think I think I don't necessarily think. Well, I mean, the way that Paul talks about them, it seems like they have a bad intent. I mean, you don't tell somebody that's just mistaken that they should go ahead and emasculate themselves. So um, I, I do think there is a, the party that comes has uh, the ill intent of causing Gentiles to live under the old covenant law. I don't think they necessarily think that that's wrong. I think that's the right. They think that's the right thing to do, but they're wrong. So what indication in any of the works of the 12 disciples or James do we have? to indicate that they they do not agree with these interlocutors that works is a requirement for justification or righteousness. Well, I think the best example is right here in Galatians 2, because Peter was not living. He was living as one not under the law. And then these Judaizers show up and he's like, uh-oh, I better start living under the law again. So either Peter violated the thing that was supposedly saving him um, while he was with the Galatians and then withdrew. And then, and the thing of it is Paul calls him on it. So if Paul knows that the Jews are supposed to still love under the law. He should have been calling Peter out long before the Judaizers got there. But the, uh, it wasn't until the Judaizers got there and Peter withdrew from, from fellowship with the church that Paul caused him a, caused him a hypocrite. So, if Paul is calling him out for his withdrawal, 
basically going back to live under the law, then Peter would not have been required to live under the law according to Paul and according to Peter and only changes his mind when peer pressure shows up. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Um, so Paul, I think to me, this to me, this is the best example of of Peter doesn't believe that he has to live under the law, but he also knows sort of the pressure and the politics of, of Jerusalem, uh, and so uh, he kind of offends or treats the people of Galatia poorly because of these Judaizers that come from Jerusalem. And so the the people in so the, at Galatians two starts out or Galatians 2, 11, is a flashback to the third incident. So we got the first incident in Acts 15. Right. We got the second incident, uh, I, I'd say, described here, in which men from James comes and uh, Peter withdraws, and then uh, there's some sort of interaction there. And yep. then the third incident, which is the occasion of writing this letter. Yep. And so in this second incident, we'll call it the second incident in the chronological sense. These are men from James that Peter is fearing. It, and it uses the word fear in 2.12, yeah. yeah. fearing the circumcision party. Right. Because, so it seems because, because the Jews are the Jews haven't gotten out gotten over the circumcision thing yet. So they're still they're still living that way because James hasn't moved them away from it yet. So yeah, again, I can I can understand the political situation. Peter's in a really tough spot here, um, and maybe it would have this would have been a good time for Peter to sit down with those that came and said, "Look, <laughs> I know what we live like in Jerusalem, but here's the reality." And mm -hmm. he didn't he didn't take the time to do that. He basically offended the Gentiles by withdrawing. So, I mean, you you say he says right here in verse fourteen, but. If you a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So, either he's either he's changed his teaching to basically tell the the Gentiles, well, maybe you should do some of these things to please the Jews, or it's his actions um, of withdrawing and living under the law and starting to do Torah things that has has offended the the those at Antioch. So. So there there's a book by a dispensationalist called uh, Bob Hill in which. Uh, it's it's called uh, oh, what, what is it called? Oh, I I I knew it like three seconds ago, and then it fell out of my head. You're getting it's, old. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting old. Oh man, it's so terrible. All all my my hair's fallen. I made a reference the other day to uh, what is it? Uh, oh dang it! It's it's all good. Danger, Will Robinson. I made that reference, and then these, <laughs> none of these kids knew Lost in Space. Did you call them whippersnappers? I uh, get on my lawn, you little whippersnappers. Yeah, but uh, Bob Hill wrote a book called "The Big Difference," and so uh, his first chapter is all about Galatians two seven and two eight, and uh, he argues here this th these two verses are describing the different dispensations. And remember, dispensation is a loose word that God works with various individuals in different ways at different <laughs> points of time. Uh, two seven says, on the contrary, I'll go to New King James. I like that translation a little bit better, but uh, ESV is good too. Oh man, it just disappeared, it changed on me. On the contrary, when they saw the gospel of the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was for Peter, and so it it's talking about two different gospels 
or two different ministries. And the question comes down to content. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. It, it seems to me that there's two different messages. And the whole of Galatians is talking about conflicts between the two parties to these different messages. There's the circumcision party and the circumcision parties coming down here and stirring things up. And then there's the uncircumcision party, the, the Paul's party. Um, well, there's a couple of issues with that. Um, and I'm going to pull out the Greek here just because I can. Yeah. Um, the gospel in verse seven is actually only mentioned once. Um, yes, that's true. There, it's, So it's the, the saying that, <clears throat> um, I have been trusted the gospel. I have circumcised Peter. Have been trusted with the gospel. They're they're repeating it in English because in English we don't like ellipses. We don't like yeah things to kind of go back and refer to things before. And actually, this verse in Greek is a lot shorter. And basically, it says um, that I have been trusted with the gospel. Uh, and again, there's a uh, there's a genitive here that's called a genitive of destination. So actually, the Paul. Paul preaching the gospel is for the destination to the Jews, and Peter's preaching is destination is to the gen or to the Gentiles. I think I said that backwards, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and we can see this throughout the book of Acts that every time Paul goes into a town, he tries to preach to the Jews and fails miserably. And um, I think this is just reflecting the reality of that. That Paul is basically saying, "Look, when I go and preach to the Jews." They get mad at me. They stone me. They throw me out of the city. They try to put me to death. They let me out of the, all the city through a, a hole in the wall once. So why would they? <laughs> why would they do that to him? Um, I suspect because um, they didn't like what he was saying. <laughs> yeah. What What did he say that they didn't like? Because they seem very receptive to Jesus being the risen Messiah, right? Well, no, they're not really. <laughs> um, the... Uh, because he's preaching to Jews that are still Jews that are not Christians, you know. So he's those are those he's going into the synagogues to preach to them. And I don't know. It, we don't. We aren't told whether it's his style, whether the you know uh, whether he sounds too Roman because he was he's 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 a Pharisee, but he's also classically trained um, Roman rhetorician. He likes to use Roman rhetoric, and so. Um, it could be just his style just doesn't agree with them. Um, it could be just, you know, God wanted to make clear to Paul that, no, you go go preach to those Gentiles. And Paul constantly wanted to go to the Jews first, and God didn't release the Holy Spirit to enlighten the people that he was preaching to. It's, it, we really don't know why. We just know that Paul's style to the Jews just didn't work. It, it, it wasn't... Uh, it was it was grating to them. They you know, and I, it could be because he was. Um, well, I don't know. It's it's impossible to say why. It's just true throughout the Book of Acts that he tries to preach to the Jews and fails miserably. Continues to do it right up through Acts twenty eight. And I think it's in Acts twenty eight when he finally says, "I'm washing my feet of you guys, and I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles." But he does that several times. You look in um, Acts thirteen. He yeah. goes to the to the uh, the synagogue. And preaches, and the people are like, "Huh, this is pretty interesting. Can you come back next week?" But over the following week, uh, the Jewish—I think it was Jewish women, other prominent Jewish people—and this could be why they—they they probably saw the political situation, but basically riled off all the Jews against Paul, 
And so they were arguing with him the following week. And Paul said, fine, I'm done with you. I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. And this is this famous Calvinist verse, you know, where um, the Gentiles jumped with joy and those that yeah. were ordained uh, were appointed uh, appointed to eternal life believed. Well, the, the active voice here is actually Paul. Paul's preaching is what commands or ordains or whatever. And so all the things that he's even saying to the Jews that the Jews are fighting him against, the Gentiles are like, sweet, give me some of that. Um and yeah, so, the, the, there are such thing as Acts 13 dispensationalists right. too, but oh yeah, uh, I believe it. But again, well, it happens in Acts 28. It happens yeah. a couple of other times, um, and I think this is that's confirmed here. Is like Peter Paul is just saying, "Look, I seem to have success preaching to the Gentiles. I suck at preaching to the Jews. Peter, you seem to have pretty good success in preaching to the Jews. Why don't you go preach the gospel to them, and I'm gonna go to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and that way we can all be successful." Uh, I, I don't know about that. I think one big problem is that anytime we do get any indication of if these people are believers or not who are having disputes with him about circumcision, it's always believing individuals. It's people coming from James. It's a group of believers who are zealous for the law, as in Acts 21. It's oh, people who appeal to the 12. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's true. Um, but again, that, that doesn't mean that there was a different gospel. It just means that... Uh, the Jews were so stuck in their culture that there was just no way you were going to get them away from, you know, the things of the law, doing circumcision and all the other things that were involved with, with being under the law. Certainly it was going to take, you know, a couple of generations for them to, <coughs> to migrate away from that. So it could be, or else the content of his message was just so scandalous to them. Yeah. Yeah. He's preaching something they fundamentally disagree with, which, Paul then fights back in Galatians against. Yep. You, you well, see his language. These guys need to cut off their private parts. These people yes. are he, terrible. He, yeah, because because they've now come into his. I mean, you know, when he's preaching among the Jews, he understands that this is the Jews and this is their culture. But these were a bunch of bunch of Jews that came into his Gentile church and were trying to teach them to do things that violated the Acts fifteen. Um, the Acts 15 covenant, which I think he even refers to the Acts 15 covenant, and he was it in here. Uh, yes, he does refer to it. Um, just right after we talked about uh, yeah. his interactions so, with Peter, he he recounts the decision in that in which the Gentiles don't have to do these certain things. Right. Paul so seems. He, I mean, I, I can see Paul being somewhat angry writing this letter to them. Oh, he, he's furious, absolutely. So, and so, and I think that's what he's angry about. It's like I've I've established very clear i fought very hard to establish very clearly what the rules for the gentiles were james agreed with me peter agreed with me everybody was at the acts 15 council agreed with me and now you're coming down here and telling these people no that's not really true you need to you need to be submit yourself to the law i think he's um, and, and not only that i think you agreed with me that the people who are coming in and down and doing it are seeing it as a salvation issue um probably yeah, so yeah, like in Galatians, clear, but that's I'm sure that's what I'm sure that's what the people that came to Galatia probably believed. Yeah, yeah. So in Galatians one eight, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, and now say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, uh, uh, let him be accursed. He, he does that twice because. These people are preaching another gospel. These people who are from James, these people who are from Jerusalem, 
they all seem to be under the impression this is a gospel issue. Yes, because of their because because basically that's that's the culture that they come from. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. that's probably true. Um. So, but again, if if um, you know, we know that Peter was in Corinth. So, um, if Peter is is teaching in Corinth, is he preaching Paul's gospel or is he preaching his gospel? He's probably treating the Gentiles according to the dictates of the letter and uh, preaching to the Jews circumcision. Well, but there's no indication there are any Jews in, in Corinth. Uh, yeah, they had all sorts of communities all uh, over the place. I mean, you know, but Paul and Peter are, are, are together preaching to the church in Corinth. They're preaching the same gospel there. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't see there. I mean, Paul basically states in chapter three that it doesn't matter whether it's Peter or Barnabas or him, they are all teaching the same thing in Christ. I believe that's first Corinthians three. And so there, Paul is very much in unity with Peter in Corinth. So, so then, one more time, can you repeat that one more time? First Corinthians three, uh, Paul, and basically what it is happening is the, the Corinthians are dividing themselves by, um, potentially who baptized them or, you know, whose philosophy they think is better. So they, some say I follow Cephas, some say I follow Barnabas, some say I follow Paul, some say I follow Christ, as though they're they're teaching competing philosophies, which basically yeah. comes from the way the Roman culture was around them. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, you know, Peter and Barnabas and me are all summed up in Christ. We're all We're all preaching the same message. So, I mean, all right, so we're we're almost we're almost at two hours here. So I think uh, we've had some pretty profitable discussion. I think we agree on quite a lot of stuff. We agree with um, a lot of the history we agree with, and uh, like Acts fifteen, sometimes you're listening to people talk about the history in Acts, and they'll just like skip Acts fifteen. They're like, I don't know what's going on here, but uh, we're we're fairly in agreement with the history of how it occurred, in what way. Who is doing what and who said what? And so a lot of a lot of commonalities here. Uh, I guess the last question before I let you go tonight is uh, James. Does James contradict Paul in James two fourteen? What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Whereas Paul seems to have an exact opposite statement that uh, uh, if you're adding works. Uh, uh, I don't, I don't got the reference offhand, but I should. But in Galatians, uh, he condemns having works. The well, in Galatians, Paul is referring to works of the law, and so he's talking about, um, basically, you know, well, you you have you you believe, but you still have to be circumcised, you still have to eat kosher, you still have to do all of the 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 law things that the Judaizers would have brought along. Um, well, Oh, James, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, James seems to include in his works of the law positive works like visiting widows yep. within the book of James, right? Yep. Um, I mean, it's, it's, if you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sins and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So what James is, Paul is saying it, it is a salvific issue Faith, salvation by faith through grace is how you get saved. What James is saying is that the nature of your faith cannot be just mental assent, because he says, where does it say down here? Uh, 
Uh, do you believe God is one? Even the demons believe that. Where did that go? Uh, right here, 219. There you is. Yeah, so, even God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You know, I'll be showing you, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. And I think that his point is that um, your faith should be of such a quality that it's reflected in your works. That you can't just say, I'm giving a mental assent to, uh, to Christ and not, and not maturing, not showing sanctification, not showing the renewing of a mind that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, or Romans 12. He's, he's talking about um, showing some spiritual maturity as a result of what you believe. So do you believe that uh, Paul would say moral laws are required for salvation? So, for example, um, could someone be a serial killer and a Christian and be saved? In, in Paul, in, in what you know of what Paul teaches, would, would Paul say that a serial killer in the act of serial killing could be saved? Did I lose you? No. I'm, um, oh, okay. I don't know. I'm, I'm going through Paul's writings. Hold on. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, we'll be here a while. He's got quite a few books. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I'm, I'm thinking First Corinthians six twelve, where he says that all things are, uh, all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. Yeah. Um, but by the same sense, he says, uh, because, so because we're under, under grace, should we go on sinning by no, by no means? And so I believe that's Romans six. So I, I don't think Paul would say that the a serial killer who claims to be a believer would be likely believed. You know, I don't. I don't think. It would be I don't theoretically think possible. It, it would if it's, it's one of those things. Yeah, it's it's theoretically possible, but I mean, realistically, you know, it, that's that's probably the most extreme case that you can have. And I think James would say uh, more or less the same thing. He's he, if you're if you're a, um, you know, if you're a, a serial killer and you're addicted to serial killing and you become a Christian, you believe, um, and then your addiction drives you to kill another person, did he stop being saved at that point? I don't think James would say he stopped being saved. I don't think Paul would say he, he stopped being saved at that point. Well, I would I think, think James would say that faith without works is dead. So <laughs> a serial well, killer would definitely not be saved. No, I well, but I think he's, again, he's talking about, uh, and ongoing a living living a life that increasingly shows a reflection of the faith that you have. He's not again. If we're going to take this literally, then James is preaching Christian perfectionism. Well, it because says, "Can I mean, faith save him?" And so, correct. Well, then that's just it. If you're going to say that um, anybody that does something that's not of faith is not really saved, then you have to be a perfect Christian in order to be saved, according to James. And yeah, that's totally not the case. Stand, well, that's that's a whole other question. What his standard of perfection would entail, if it, it does entail minor slip ups, or if it's a lifestyle, or if it's sinless perfection like uh, Jesus. Right, but I, I think what James is saying is that, um, and he's basically chiding the people that he's writing to. You need to start living like you believe. So, can faith save him? The rhetorical answer is yes. Oh no, the the well, I'm yeah. It's the 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 answer to that question is it's intended to be a rhetorical question in the sense that, um, is is this the kind of faith that you have? He's not saying that, um, 
that faith is works are required from faith, but he's saying your faith has to be of such a nature that it results in this. And this is what you see again in verse, which is a verse 19. It's like if you have a mental ascent faith, that's not going to save you. And that's that's his point in this entire section, is that you know you need to straighten up and fly straight because you're believers. And I would agree with that. Like you believe, mental ascent will not save you. I think that's a good summary of James. Yeah, and I I think Paul would teach mental ascent would save you. No, I don't. I don't think he would say that at all. I think uh, you go to Romans four. Um, uh, Paul or basically Paul says Abraham believed and it was credited him as righteousness. But what did Abraham believe? Well, he believed God when he said, go to another country where I'm going to show you. He believed God when he said, you're going to have another child at, at the age of 100 and your wife is 99 or 99, yeah. whatever yeah. it is. So Paul Paul, is, Paul in Romans 4 contrasts faith with works of the law. But by the same token, he's also referencing Abraham's acts of faith that resulted in being credited with righteousness. You, so, you think, he's, think he's talking... You're, you're not conflating James' use of uh, Abraham, are you? No. No, in Romans 4, Paul says Abraham believed and it was credited him with righteousness. But if you right. go back to, to Genesis 12 and, and the entire Abraham story, it's the, the entire thing about is Abraham believes God and then he is that God renews covenant with him. And so it's it's not a matter of, because of, you know, if Abraham, you know, God would have come to Abraham and said, go to another country that I will show you. And Abraham said, I believe you, and he stayed at home. Well, that wouldn't have been resulted in crediting with righteousness because he, you know, while he may acknowledge that God exists, he does he's not living like he believes that God has told him to do this. And the same thing with sacrificing Isaac um, on the mountain. If Abraham would have said, Yeah, I acknowledge that you told me that and didn't go to the mountain to do it, well, he wouldn't have been credited with righteousness because he needed to act upon the belief that God was was instructing him to do. So there is there is action inherent in Romans four with Abraham believing, and so yeah, in Galatians three, this this is uh, Paul Paul writing. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted for to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And yep. the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, the Gentiles. So it's it's not about the Jews here. The Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham before him, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. It seems it seems like he leaves the works out. But when Paul talks about, or not Paul, but when James talks about the same incident in James 2, he talks about those works. He gives but the description. They're, they're addressing two different topics. Part of it is that Paul is basically proving that salvation is by faith to People who think then presumably some of these, I mean, there is a, a theory that's actually said Romans, or Paul is writing Romans to a Jewish audience in Rome. I don't know if that's entirely true, but certainly Jews are involved uh, in, in receiving this book because the uh, the admonition to the Jews are obvious. So, um, but the, the so, but so Paul is basically demonstrating in one through four that. <clears throat> salvation is by faith and this faith does not include following the law so that's the purpose of of, of the fourth chapter but and even saying that abraham believed when well, we say that abraham abraham uh father gave his faith he was justified by works he's something most about before god well he wasn't justified by works he was abraham believed god but the way that he believed god was in his actions that was the way it's demonstrated at least okay so you you just said 
Abraham was not justified by his works, right? Was not justified works of the law. Okay, the works in this context is works of the law. Or okay. justified apart from faith, anyway. So James says that he was justified by works, right? And justified so you're, you're saying the distinction it's a, it's, is... It's a different phrase. Uh, James 2.21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Correct. That And that's basically... Abraham is already a believer at this point, okay? He's already demonstrated his faith in God and going to another country and doing all the other things. And Isaac is is born because, you know, Abraham believes. So he's already a believer. And um, Abraham continues to be justified in his faith because he um, believes God in sacrificing Isaac. This is not a, this is not a initial salvation justification. This is a, uh, you know, an ongoing demonstrating the elements of his faith. And really that's what, and if you read Genesis 22, that's what's being tested is, will you, will you put your son before God? That's the question yeah, being asked of Abraham. Absolutely. And so Abraham is doing the ultimate test of faith and being willing to sacrifice his son to demonstrate his faith to God. So he's demonstrating faith. He's not expressing initial faith. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting take. I I do think that there is some tension here, and it's it's not. Yeah, not, I'm not I'm not alone in this observation. I, I, I in fact bought an, an entire book by some Catholic or something trying to to reconcile James's work and Paul's work, which yeah. on the value the Catholics have an issue with this for a different reason, but yes, they do. Yeah. Um, so and Luther actually hated it too, and Luther semi-jokingly said he wished he could just throw the book of James out of the Bible. So yeah, so the 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 dispensationalist <laughs> Acts 9, 12 disciples out plus tension view <laughs> is that James is low-key criticizing Paul here. Yeah. Which which also I think is Ellen Pagel's take on this. I think she has a paragraph that uh, talks about this tension being a direct attack, passive aggressive on Paul. I, I, to be honest, I think James is having to follow up um, on people who have taken what Paul said too far because Paul said things like um, um, all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. And so Paul seems to be indicating that um, you're no longer no longer under a law. So when you do things, you're not necessarily violating the law, but they're not profitable. They're not good for you. Um and so people are taking that Christian liberty too far. And actually, Paul has to come back and address that in, um, yeah. a couple of other times in other ways. Yeah, in Romans, Romans, he definitely has to deal with that. <laughs> well, and, and but I think James is dealing with it in his own way. Potentially, this got into the Jewish community that this kind of thing was going on. And people are like saying, well, I'm a believer. I'm no longer on the law. So, you know what, I can do whatever I want as long as it's not in the temple. You know, I don't have to. I don't have to show mercy to orphans, widows, and I don't have to, um, you know, live under uh, under you know what's what God's moral law and those kinds of things. And so, really, James is responding and drawing a little bit of a boundary and saying, "Here, look, you claim to believe in God. You need to start acting like it." And so, there's a Paul is dealing with an issue of people that are being a little bit too tight uh, and trying to trying to get people to live under the law and he's trying to get them to loosen up a little bit and people have loosened up a little bit too much. And now James and Paul are kind of having to rein that in a little bit. So does that make sense? 
yeah, no, I, I do understand what you're saying. I think it is a good take. I just, I don't think it's the most form fitting take, if that makes sense. Like, you know, there's the, the, the tension has between Romans four and James two and a few other passages has always existed in the churches to, uh, to what extent do, do we, I don't want to say force this on people, but you know, your holiness movement will, will latch onto this and say, yeah, see your works. You need to show me your works. Um, your, uh, you know, some of your, some of your freer denominations will say, no, this is just, you know, you have to do some things that show that you're, you know, you're not being mean to people and you're, you're helping the poor and things like that. But you, you know, it's, it's really not a big deal. And so there's, there's, yeah, that tension always exists. And I think it, it exists um, even outside of these two passages. I mean, even Paul in, in um, Romans 12, 2 has to turn around and say that, you know, you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, you know, there's, there's, there's issues of justification, issues of sanctification. And um, <clears throat> I think James is just trying to get into the heads of, of some Jewish believers by using the Abraham example to say, you know, don't think that you're justified just because you have this mental ascent. So. Mm -hmm. All right. So, uh, so we've gone to the two hours. So I will be cutting us loose. I'll make some final comments, uh, summing up some of the things we talked about, some of the evidences. And again, you and I are in agreement, like 95% of everything we've talked about. Yeah, a little yep. bit of uh, the interpretation of the data in which we differ. Yep. I, I believe that what happened was Jesus was trying to teach an apocalyptic ministry to the Jews. This ministry uh, failed to uh, affect its intended uh, results. It didn't convert Israel into the priest nation that was envisioned. And so God had to change processes and go to the Gentiles. And during this time, the time of transition, you had multiple parties, people who are under the old system, such as James and the Twelve, and their disciples, and that's where we see them coming into conflict with the new dispensation or oikonomia is the Greek word, the new economy, the new way of dealing with the Gentiles, whereas the Gentiles were being taught things that the Jews had never considered, and it caused this fighting. And I think this fighting went on well into the lifetime of Paul and James and probably never was resolved within their lifetimes. And so um, you go ahead and give any of your closing thoughts, any of your observations or anything else you would like to talk about. Um, I think the one thing that we really didn't get to, which would probably require another two hours, <laughs> uh, would be the establishing of the new covenant. Um, the new covenant is promised by God in, in Jeremiah um, and is established by Christ in his death. And I think that was the plan for redemption all along. Um, to say that Israel was supposed to be, you know, the priest to the nation, the priests to the nation is fine. But to say that Jesus came to try to get them to finally spur them to do it, I think is doesn't reflect the the promise of a new covenant uh, and how it was to be established. And I think the I, I think uh, well, I think the, the new covenant was the means by which everybody would uh, would receive salvation. And so, um, the I think, and I think the best evidence that this is for the Gentiles would be in First Corinthians eleven, where um, uh, Paul instructs the, Jew, the Gentiles to drink of the covenant of the new covenant. So the 
I, I don't think your view comports with how does the new covenant become? Because if Jesus isn't killed at the end of the three years, the new covenant never occurs. Um, right. And that, that I guess that would be like another to our discussion. It is. Yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, I hope to come back around that, but we never got there. So yeah, uh, we, we might have to pick that up and then you'll have to convince me of this uh, concept of the new covenant being issued in at Jesus's death. I'm not sure I'm totally sold on those ideas, but I yeah. am willing to listen and consider. Sure. So I, I thank you so much for coming on. I think it was a fruitful discussion. I think uh, a lot of good interaction. And it probably cleared up for a lot of people those confusing passages in Acts, in Acts 15, Acts, Acts 21. Sure. And so a lot of good things that we talked about. But uh, it's great to have you on the program, and we'll have to do it again if uh, you'll allow me. I don't oh, know. absolutely. I've, I've had a, a great time doing this. So the only thing is I have to go to bed now because it's past my bedtime. So. <laughs> oh, isn't it? It is getting kind of late. Oh, it's, a it's one of those things that happens when you get old. Oh yeah, you start going to bed early, and yeah. then your kids are still. My kids are always. You you have grown kids. You have six kids. I have six. I got, kids and they are all grown out of the house. I have uh, three married and four grandkids. So wow, I didn't take you for that old. I I was I'm seeing you as like a forty year old. Oh sorry, you're off by fourteen. Yeah. Oh man. So well, you look pretty good for your age. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, if anyone has questions or comments, start through a thread on the God is Open Facebook page or down on the YouTube channel. Thank you for listening.